This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. I had a successful career, an Ivy League education, and led a very rational life. Several years ago, I had a spiritual awakening, developed psychic gifts, and decided to dedicate my life to pursue my purpose and empower others. I'm hungry to learn even more about the incredible potential of the human mind and spirit. On this podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs, executives, scientists, and leaders to hear their stories of transformation, the science behind them, and what it means for you to unlock your potential in your life and career. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. I'm here today with Dr. Anna Yusim, who is a psychiatrist with a private practice in New York City. And you may remember her from our very first episode, which was our live panel discussion. Anna is also the author of a new book called Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Beautiful title. Anna, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. So I love to dive right into this book, which congratulations, it just Thank launched you. very recently, right? And what inspired you to write about this topic? So my interest in this topic came really through my own journey. And, you know, I was going along through life doing what I thought I needed to do and what I thought would make me happy. And that is really training to be a doctor. And I was developing all these healing tools of Western medicine. I did my undergraduate at Stanford, my medical schooling at Yale, my residency in New York City here at NYU. And I thought I was doing it all right. And suddenly my life hit a bump in the road. And it's a time that I call my dark night of the soul. And in my professional life, things weren't going well. In my personal life, things weren't going well. And I talk about the details of that in my book. And I came upon all of this darkness. And with all these healing tools I had, I wasn't able to pull myself out of this darkness. And I said, you know what? I don't really have a choice here. I need to figure out how to heal myself, how to remove myself from this darkness. Because after all, this is what I'm going to be doing with my own life. And that's when my spiritual journey started. So I started developing these new tools and learning about other ways of healing that Western medicine didn't offer. So that's when I went to study in ashrams in India and learn Buddhist meditation in Thailand and study Kabbalah in New York City and also in Israel and start working with shaman in South Africa and South America. And in the course of all this, I got a whole new understanding of how the world works, not just healing tools, but actually just the universe, like a whole new perspective on life in a sense. And in the midst of all that, my own darkness started to lift. And that was ultimately what inspired this book. Mm, beautiful. So it's not often that a psychiatrist would talk about spirituality and shamanism 
do you find that you have good company within your field or do you feel like it's still something that people maybe haven't made the the connection to how we're all interconnected? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think my, you know, personal opinion on this is that this really is the direction that medicine and psychiatry is going. It's going to be encompassing much more spiritual ideas, ideas of energy medicine, etc. That being said, the dominant paradigm really doesn't encompass this very much. The dominant paradigm is still very much a reductionist, materialistic, you know, material existence, not materialistic, sorry, scratch that. <laughs> the dominant paradigm is very much still a you know, body-oriented idea where that which is real can be seen and measured and tested via experimentation. And the nature of spirituality is actually contrary to that. It's very subjective and personal and not always subject to experimentation. It's not always repeatable. So that's why it's so hard to quantify and study some of these things from a scientific standpoint, which is why it's been hard for the scientific community to really embrace some of these ideas. So that being said, um, two of the former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, kind of the governing body of my profession, have stood behind and endorsed this book. So things really are changing. But nevertheless, I think that's more the minority than the majority. It was really interesting reading the book and kind of understanding your perspective, which is not something that many people really get to see, like from from the psychiatrist perspective and all the client stories that you've included in the book, what, I guess, how you approach treatment. And on the one hand, there's, you know, medication and what that can do. And on the other, there's, you know, all these different exercises and, and modalities of how you can really help someone um, kind of uncover what's what's more unconscious. So how do you how do you approach these two things, and and what is unique about um, how you do it? Mm -hmm. Right. And so in my practice, I really try to integrate these two models. So the Western medical model, which includes sometimes medication when medically indicated, and also a more spiritual model, which really is about helping people reconnect with their souls. And always, if somebody comes in acutely ill and so acutely ill that either they're suicidal or they're acutely manic or they're having, you know, hallucinations or delusions that are severe as part of schizophrenia or bipolar with psychotic features, someone like that needs medication. But for the most part, that's the minority of the cases that I see. The majority of cases, people might come with a mild or moderate depression or with anxiety or with things that really could lead themselves reasonably to a more therapeutic approach, more psychological approach, more spiritual approach, or if the patient chooses, medication certainly is an option but isn't a necessity. Can you give us some examples of, of stories? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, more and more patients I'm finding are coming to see me wanting to get off their medication. 
And they're wanting to use spiritual tools. They're wanting to use complementary and alternative medicine because they're finding medications have side effects and these side effects are real and they limit their lives. So the most common medications I prescribe are SSRIs, so serotonin reuptake inhibitors for depression, for anxiety, for OCD. They have very real side effects like sexual side effects and that really hinders and limits people's lives. So over and over people come in. They want other alternatives. You know, I have these symptoms. I don't know how to treat them, but I don't want to be on meds anymore. And so together we figure out what are spiritual practices we can integrate, what are dietary changes, physical life changes, what are, you know, exercise changes. How can we integrate other things into people's lives to free them from meds? And just as much, I also have people who've done so much psychological and spiritual work on themselves. And they're like, this has gotten me so far and I'm so happy with my growth. However, I feel like there's just this, you know, chasm that I can't cross on my own. I want some meds and I want some help. And I've seen that as well. And, you know, to give you some examples, I had a, a woman who's done so much work on herself. She really cured herself of an alcohol addiction, which is incredibly difficult to do. But despite that, the cravings continue and they're really, really strong. And so eventually she came and she's like, you know, I really want the next level. I've worked so hard on myself. <clears throat> I'm doing so well in many ways, but I really want some help from our biochemical level. So we started her on a medication, naltrexone, and her cravings really, really went down. It was like that next level, you know? A really interesting part of working with patients is really thinking about when is a patient ready to go to that next level, to release, to give up medications, to get off medications, taper a dose, and really think about what can they use instead of this. And it's a beautiful thing when a patient gets to that level, when they're able to feel empowered enough and thereby put forth the intention, I'm ready to do this. Oftentimes there's withdrawal. There might be some of the symptoms coming back temporarily, but patients get to a point through the work that they do in therapy and otherwise that they're able to weather those blows. Like they're actually able to take life more head on. And because medications, they help with symptoms at that basic level of symptoms, but often medications don't go get to the soul level, you know, and often when patients present with anxiety, depression, and other things of that nature, a frequent cause is a disconnection from one's own soul. And that's really the kind of work that I love to do with patients to help them reconnect with themselves, to start living more authentic lives, to reconnect with their purpose and release self-defeating patterns in their life. And in doing so, they start to need the medication less. They need it less as a crutch. Medication can be a wonderful thing to help with symptoms while you're doing the work of healing. But eventually people, not everybody, you know, but many people can get off. How do you know when you're kind of speaking with a patient that the underlying cause is a disconnection from their soul? And, and then what is your process to have them reconnect? And I would think that part of, part of that process requires that the person even be aware that, some, that there is a disconnection in the first place. Absolutely. And so let's think about etiology of mental illness, right? What are the etiologies? The etiologies are multifold. And for everybody, it's a combination of multiple factors. Very rarely is it just one thing. And that's always a combination of 
biological factors, including your biochemistry, your genetics, your, you know, the foods that you eat, things of that nature, and also environmental, which could be the people that you surround yourself with, the kind of work that you do, and other choices that you make in your day-to-day life that supersede your biology or that interact and are complementary with your biology. Always these two interact. And there are some people based on their family history and genetics that are predisposed very strongly to certain mental illness. And people like that, those are people oftentimes who might be on medication for longer periods of time or for life. And if it helps them to function to a much, much better level, wonderful. You know, if that's what they need, that's what they need. But if someone's illness is more at the level of environment, if there isn't a strong biological propensity to certain symptoms, people really can work through things at the soul level. And this is not to say that even if somebody does have a strong biological predisposition that they shouldn't be doing soul work, but it's the other people that might not have a strong of a predisposition. So what all this comes down to is that there's biological propensities and then there's environmental factors. And no matter what is at play in a person's life, whether biological, environmental, whatever is at the cause or at the root or etiology of someone's illness or symptoms, everyone could do soul work and soul work can benefit everybody. It's um, certain people may be more amenable to getting off medications than others. For certain people, it might be harder, but soul work really is something that could benefit everybody. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Anna and I will dive into what this soul work is and what can do for you. We'll be right back. a story or a comment you'd like to share i'd love to hear from you follow the show on twitter instagram and facebook at all possible show you can also connect with me directly at my own website beingmypurpose.com do you remember what we used to say about running oh somebody bigger had to chase you (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly i'm bj smith and that's exactly how i felt about running most of my life That was until one fall day in 2011. I was chasing my son in the backyard when... Something had to change. This was the beginning of my journey to becoming a runner. One that would take me from couch to marathon in less than two years. Now I'm setting my sights higher. This is 16 Weeks, a new podcast from Mouth Media Network, following me on my journey to get into shape while keeping up my obligations at work and still being there for my family. And I'm not doing it alone. My name is Keith Smart. I won a silver medal in Beijing. I'm a sport and exercise psychologist at ECU. Coach athletes all over the world. I'll talk with experts about challenges all runners face, like figuring out how to make time to run, what to eat, and how to train. You got so dehydrated. Your heart rate went up and it felt like you were working so hard. Everything's trainable, whether it's run form, strength. That's all trainable. And so is our thinking. Subscribe now to 16 Weeks on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you find great podcasts. Together, we can do this. All right, we are back with Dr. Anna Yusum, who is a psychiatrist and author of the new book, Fulfilled. And we were just talking about medication and spirituality, and now we're going to dive into soul work. 
So, Anna, what what is soul work and what does it entail? Mm -hmm. So, soul work is the basis of my book and it entails three parts. One is authenticity, two is soul correction, and three is connecting to part of something greater. Let's dive into each of those. So, um, authenticity, we always hear about that. And I think sometimes now the word just kind of flows over our heads and, and we don't really know what it means. So what are examples of, of truly living according to your own authentic self? Mm-hmm. Right. So authenticity is just like you said, living according to who you are at the soul level and really reconnecting or connecting to yourself in a way you never have before. And it's taking off all of the labels and expectations that everybody has for you and understanding what is it that I'm supposed to be doing in this world? What is it that I most deeply want? And the way to do that is to be more honest with yourself and with others in your life, to start to release self-deception, to embrace your shadow side, which is the part of us that we often disavow, and then to start to identify and align with your soul correction, which I'll tell you about, and also your soul contribution, what you uniquely need to be contributing to this world. How does one even go about realizing that they're not living authentically? Like how do they feel it? I mean, I've, I definitely felt like something was missing, but I couldn't put my finger on it or I, I couldn't articulate it. So it became this kind of nebulous thing and that, that I was trying to push into the back of my mind. And what you're saying is exactly how people will present. And that's how, you know, in my own life it was as well. It was, I just felt like something was off. I couldn't even tell what it was. And this is separate from what led me down my spiritual path, which was really a dark night of the soul. But even before that, you know, I was living this, the life that I thought I was supposed to live. I had, um, a man that I was dating. We had a cute little apartment together and we, uh, you know, I was studying to be a doctor, but something just felt so off and not exactly right. I didn't feel connected to who I really was. So you were kind of going through the day, but not really like knowing what was even wrong. And often patients will come, they'll come with a symptom. Maybe it'll be anxiety, depression, maybe some stomach pain or inability to sleep. And it's only when we really get to the root of it that we start to see, you know, something's a little misaligned here. Like there's a little something missing and they can't put their finger on it. At first I can't, and we try to figure it out together. Hmm. It's interesting that, that sometimes we, we sense these things spiritually and it's not until it actually hurts physically that we're willing to do something about it or even ask the question. Right, right. And I had a patient who actually I saw her today. Um, she, a lovely, lovely young woman who at the age of 25 had stomach cancer. And for that, for her, she felt like up until that point, she really was living an inauthentic life, even though she was doing everything that her family expected of her, that society expected of her. But it was only when she got cancer that she really freed herself from those expectations and started living the life that she wanted. And she completely changed her life, did something totally different, um, became so much happier. And her cancer went away. I mean, this, that's obviously like a, a perfect little story. Not everything, life is not always so perfect, but, you know, that's often how people do present. Hmm. 
And and yeah, I've definitely heard of stories where a maybe spiritual stress, maybe not living authentically or um, kind of allowing the shoulds to take over our life. Like we should be doing this. We should be, you know, making this m- amount of money or our career should look a certain way. And then, um, then it actually presents itself as an illness. And then that illness could actually go away, which is hope I'd say for, for a lot of us out there. Um, and it has happened at four. So that's, that's really interesting. So let's move on to the second part, which you talk about as soul corrections. What does that look like? Right. So our soul corrections are those things that our souls have come into this world to correct essentially. And it's those things that keep coming up in your life over and over and over much to your chagrin and dismay and despite your best efforts to change it, which could be, you know, different things for different people. For some people, it's transforming fear. For some people, it's drawing in constantly unavailable men, even though they want a relationship or are saying consciously that they want a relationship. For some people, it's harnessing personal power. They could be mistreated or abused by people in their lives and always be treated like a doormat. You know, so it's really owning and taking back their power. And for other people, it's releasing addictions. And those are just a few of the key soul corrections that I talk about in the book. How do people actually correct their soul? And and I'm thinking kind of back to my own life and also some of the work that I do with clients, because I feel like the, the purpose coaching that I do kind of operates within that realm. And I find that for me, like using my voice and being able to say something that maybe before I was afraid of saying to other people gave me this incredible sense of freedom. It's almost like a high. And, and to me, that's, that's like, Oh, I think I might've learned that lesson or I've corrected something. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So like, how do you know your soul correction? And then how do you go about actually correcting it? And you could know your soul correction because it's often the greatest source of pain in your life. Whatever it is that keeps coming up and again, up and again, as your self-sabotaging pattern, only by recognizing what it is, can you know how to change it? And it's not easy because your soul correction is often the most difficult thing. What you're talking about, you aligned with your own purpose and you started using your voice in a new way. And it sounds like for you, that was actually, you went against your nature in some way. You did something that was different. You changed the pattern in a very distinct way that enabled you to reconnect with yourself and really contribute so meaningfully to the lives of others, which is what you're doing now. You're essentially a teacher and a healer. Yeah. Um, and and my greatest source of pain was not being able to speak, yes. even though maybe I wanted to, but I, I just couldn't get it out. And Mm -hmm. it may have been a function of being an introvert or how I was just always in my head the whole time. But, um, but yeah, I definitely see it as a correction. And if anything, it's for me, it's not like once it's corrected, it's done. It's a constant choice to keep correcting it. Precisely. Precisely. And that's just like overcoming any soul correction. When you give up an addiction, it keeps coming. Cravings can come that you can have dreams about that addiction for years thereafter. So it's a constant choice. Yeah. Some soul corrections, when you've corrected it, you move on. It's like peeling layers of an onion. You peel off one layer 
and then you get to your next challenge in life. And as long as we're alive, there's more and more things to correct that we have. So a lot of people come to me and say, I don't know what I want to do or, um, you know, whether it's career or, you know, future, whatever it looks like. How, how do you recommend to your patients that, how to figure that out? It's difficult for people to figure out what it is that they most deeply want. Some people know it right away, but other people, they really need to do a lot of soul searching. And I certainly have patients who just don't know. They don't know, they can't identify what their passion is. And for people like that, I think the most important thing is to do something and to keep trying and at the same time also be open to some form of guidance to know that the right doors will open and set the intention that, you know, the universe is going to open the doors for me that need to be open so that I could be the best version of myself and help people in the way that only I can. So to be doing something moving forward, but also be open to some sort of universal guidance in that. You include so many great exercises and kind of reflection questions in your book. What is one that you'd recommend that people can use right now? So I would recommend an exercise around the shadow side, which is one of the things people need to learn about for authenticity. Your shadow side is the part of you that you believe to be unlovable and therefore push away or disavow. And what happens when we push something away? What we resist persists and then it comes back even stronger and then we take that and we project it onto others. So the qualities that we don't like in ourselves, we actually start seeing in other people. And you could know your shadow side by asking yourself the question, what bothers me most about others? What annoys me most about others? The three main qualities. Those are usually your own shadow sides. And once you identify your shadow side, you can start working with yourself to try to accept that as a part of you and to start to love that part of yourself as well, to no longer push it away as acceptable, as unacceptable. And only in embracing your shadow, embracing your so-called darkness, can you also embrace your greatest light. It's a necessary prerequisite for it. Hmm. That made me think about when I was in high school and there were all these kids who would raise their hands and speak and it was so easy for them and I hated them for it. Like it was, I don't think I knew it at the time, but, but it was seeing that they were able to do something that I really wanted to do, but just didn't have access to it. And and yeah, that was that was my shadow side that I was, I guess, projecting onto other people and, and at the same time making myself feel wrong and small because of it. Yes. And it's interesting in this particular case that you're describing, it's um, what you saw in these people was this confidence and this capacity for expression, right? And what you said as we were talking is that your sole purpose is precisely that, to project confidence and self-expression. So mm -hmm. it's almost like what you saw in them, it wasn't a shadow as much as it was an unclaimed part of yourself. Mm. You know? Maybe claiming my personal power. Exactly. That, that part exactly. of it. Yeah. And what, you know, you were talking about using your voice. It made me think of a patient that I saw today who... Um, has been getting sore throats one after the other unexpectedly. 
And this is a woman who's an incredibly hard worker and just um, had a baby. And what's happened is she is becoming so, so busy and overwhelmed with the job that she has, which is very demanding, and with childcare that she's losing her own voice. And it's manifesting over and over in her throat area as a sore throat. And it's interesting because as she comes to therapy and keeps talking and like using her voice, her sore throat goes away. And so it's really interesting, you know, how often the symptom that people have that they present with could actually be quite indicative of the psychological meaning behind, you know, the ailment. So are there studies on this? Like, I feel like there's so much information. Like, it's not just this is a symptom and the and a disease or illness and this is the medication that can treat it or maybe in a pill form. But in this case, it's it's the the soul work that has to come about and then the the solution maybe the healing that takes place so are people actually researching this line of of work and and what are they finding and who yes. are these people yes yes there's a there's a lot done so um an author lissa rankin has done a lot in writing about the placebo effect or how our mind can heal our body right that's number one and second there's actually a ton of research studies done now on more spiritual um, effects on healing. So I'll give you, you know, some statistics. So there's a study of 95 cancer patients, and it found that spirituality was associated with less distress, better quality of life, and this is regardless of how threatening the cancer was. And there's also another study that found that people who attend a church weekly were less likely to be hospitalized for any reason. And when they were, they spent less time in the hospital than those who don't go to church. It's interesting studies, right? And so they found that um, another study that religious and spiritual commitment has been associated with reduced incidence of depression in the elderly, quicker and more thorough recovery from depression, and less alcohol dependence. And then Another study of 659 adults with alcoholism found that a spiritual awakening was a very strong predictor for sustained remission. So that's just a few, and there's a ton more where that came from. So more and more studies are beginning, beginning to legitimize spirituality and spiritual practices as being key to healing. And why does this happen? Why does this work? How does spirituality heal? And there's so many ways, but in part, it's also engaging the mind and the spirit in healing and realizing healing doesn't just come from the body. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Anna one final question and it's a good one. So don't go anywhere. If you're a business decision maker, you should listen to this. The show you're listening to is produced by Mouth Media Network, a podcasting network focused on the business of lifestyle. Because of our team's background and deep connections with brands, influencers, and ecosystems, we offer a tremendous opportunity to bring your company's message and products in front of decision makers from several verticals, including fashion, beauty, travel, materials and textiles, health and fitness, and lifestyle. Reach out to the Mouth Media team now at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Let's explore how we can collaborate and make Mouth Media Network 
a meaningful resource to share your message and grow your business. Again, that's podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. We are back, and I hope you didn't go anywhere because I have one more question. And Anna, so you know, you were here since the very beginning, the first episode, that this show is about spirituality, business, and science put together. And I feel like you are at that intersection. So how how do you operate within that intersection? And I guess my second part of that question is how can other people, like other psychiatrists, really adopt um, the work that you are doing now? Those are two excellent questions. And so to answer the first one, how do I operate at the intersection of business science and spirituality? Um, I feel like really that's my life purpose. It's to write a book at the intersection and use my medical training to explore from a scientific standpoint the science of spirituality. And where does business come into that? I guess this is all business because ultimately I'd love to get these ideas out to as many people as possible. And that's really the business of this. And how can other people adopt these ideas? So in my book, I have a number of exercises that people could do, but with um, spirituality in particular, I think it's so important for psychiatrists to begin to take a spiritual history with all of their patients. And that includes people's spiritual beliefs or lack thereof, and the meaning of spirituality in their lives, how people grew up, how those beliefs changed over time, how much people turned to a higher power or something greater than themselves for healing and in order to guide them in the choices that they make in life and to start to make that an important and vital part of every encounter that you have with your patient and to the degree that patients are open, inviting, you know, those ideas into the practice and into the um, treatment to help patients to heal. For for the skeptical psychiatrists out there, how would you persuade them or or what what information do you think they need in order for them to adopt it right and i think um the science that's coming out right now that's showing how powerful spirituality is in the healing process is probably for the skeptics more than anything else and if they don't believe in spirituality itself really do it because of the science and to try to speak to the patients and understand the patients on their terms you know and I have plenty of patients for whom spirituality really isn't a big part of their lives, and that's okay as well. In that case, we adopt psychological tools. We can use medications when medically indicated. I think the key is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach and that every patient needs an individually tailored therapy. Anna, how can our audience get in touch with you and your book? Um, And then what would you like to leave us with, a final word of wisdom Uh, a cause that you really care about. Absolutely. Um, My website um, on which you can get the book and learn more about my practice is www.annayusum.com, which is A-N-N-A-Y-U-S as in Sam, I-M as in Mary, dot com. And I hope everybody who has been listening has gotten some information to help them take one or two steps closer to their own goal of fulfillment. Beautiful. 
Anna, it is such a pleasure having you on the show as always. And congratulations on releasing the book. And I hope to hear more about where this goes and where this really, um, or, or how this really affects the field of psychiatry. Thank you so much, Julie. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And I'd recommend you pick up a copy of this book and maybe look into some of these spirituality studies yourself. I, I think I may be doing some Google searching after this. So until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.